Hi, I'm Claire Edwards and I'm the percussionist and artistic director of Sydney's new music group, Ensemble Offspring. The Offcast is a new podcast from Ensemble Offspring where I'll be chatting to the musical mavericks, the pioneers, the ones who were often perceived as the outcasts in the world of classical music as they grew and blossomed, but as professionals, it is these people who are the innovators and the ones who are creating much-needed change and diversity for our musical landscape. So today I would like to welcome Kyla Matsura-Miller. Welcome, Kyla. Hello. Thank you for having me, Claire. Hi. My pleasure. I wanted to chat to you as part of the first series of our new podcast, The Offcast, to firstly congratulate you on your recent Friedman Fellowship win. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you. Very exciting. Very. I don't know if you know, but I'm a previous recipient myself. I am most aware, of course, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's an amazing list of alumni and alumnus for the Friedman, mm. so it's a real honour, a real honour to It is. Been. And the really interesting thing, as Dick Letts pointed out to me the other day, was that over time, kind of since around the time that I won it, so however many years ago that was now, um, the, the recipients seem to get more and more sort of cutting edge every year. And there's something really, really exciting about that because it's so unusual. Mm, well, I mean, the way the industry's going, I mean, we kind of need new stuff to happen, right? I mean, Absolutely. Th- there's a reason why numbers are dwindling and funding is slowly sort of, you know, slipping through the cracks. Um, if we're not innovating, then we can expect to say bye-bye to classical music in its current form. Mm. Um, so, I mean, of course, absolutely. And it's just wonderful that um, the Friedman Foundation can see the benefit and the importance in being able to sort of keep keep the flame going for what we do because it is worth um worth hearing and worth sharing Mm. I was actually talking to Dick about Mm. um that I would love it if we could find a way to have a little kind of pool of money for all the people who don't win to to also start to realize their projects Mm. because there's so much time that they put into honing the projects now and um Yeah, that would be awesome, but that's maybe for further on down the line. Uh, it, they're all great. It, it was an enormous undertaking, I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, being nominated mm. at the beginning of the year and then sort of sitting on that initial application process. Um, some of us don't do too particularly too well with long stretches of time to get things together. Um, but then, yeah, finding out that you're in the finals and then from there it's a whole nother process, you know, um, I ended up completely rewriting my application, um, tweaking the budget and getting a lot of advice on mm. on how to sort of, you know, best best pitch pitch my idea. Um, but, yeah, it's just been the, an enormous Im- umbrella over a really bizarrely disjointed year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, weird year I mean, for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. so you grew up in Brisbane. Um, do you want to just start by sort of telling us a bit about what your childhood sort of encapsulated in relation to music and, and, oh, absolutely. and how you 
got into violin? Yeah, for sure. Um, so both my parents are musical in their own respects. Um, my mum is a pianist, a really beautiful pianist, and my dad, when I was growing up, um, was sort of the gateway to an appreciation of music very much outside of classical music, but I still have some really distinct memories of um, listening to Pink Floyd, listening to Led Zeppelin and Frank Zappa and Chick Corea and the Shags, um, either, you know, on cassette tape in the Holden Commodore <laughs> or, um, <laughs> you know, sitting down to listen to records together. Um, so my Japanese grandfather bought me my first violin and I just sort of, you know, got got going with that. But it was just a – it was a thing that I was doing. I was never sort of the prodigal child destined to become the classical superstar or whatever. Um, I was more just obsessed with rage on ABC. Um, <laughs> so on the Saturday mornings, I would park myself before my violin lessons, before Queensland Youth Orchestra's, park myself on the couch and then fight to the death with my sister over the remote because I wanted to watch all the video clips on Rage and she wanted to watch um, Saturday Morning Disney. And <laughs> so I've just always been so entranced by, by pop music and pop culture and I'd say that that was my first and is still a really huge love for me um, and I feel like that actually kind of informs my practice now as well mm. um, in just trying to focus a lot of my, just basing a lot of my music making in the voice and replicating the voice and its various nuances. Um, and then, you know, just sort of plotted along with violin, ended up being pretty good at it, you know, in primary school. And then through high school, I had some really amazing um, teachers at, at my school, Brad King and Angela Forward and Shannon Tobin, Shannon who was in Camerata of St John's at the time, um, who just really just shepherded and continued to build um, my skills as a musician and just sort of starting that chamber music process really young. And then mm. from there I went to the con and just got all of my 18-year-old sillies out with my teacher Michelle there and... Um, I knew by the end of my degree that I wanted to continue in music and with playing violin, but I'd say it was actually going to Anam that really strongly solidified um, my vision and sort of um, breaking off in, on my own path and deciding to make decisions that were for me and not for um, the expectations of you know, the school that I went to or my parents or whatever mm. that sort of cookie-cutter image of a violinist is supposed to be. Um, as I got to the end of my time at NM, that really started to make itself quite clear. Um, and then I guess that brings us up to 2019. And by the end of my time at NM, I was actually quite burnt out, first of all. I'd... Um, I think everyone must mm. get burnt out. It's unbelievable how much you guys do at yes. NM. Like, yeah. it's, it's actually a bit much. I yeah, think. it is just bonkers. And I said, I'm a yes girl. I said yes to everything. Got to 2019 and um, finally got to take a breath. And then I think really started to doubt whether um, a career as a freelance musician and a career sort of doing my own thing 
would be possible and seriously considered quitting for a while, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, but then the pandemic happened and I actually had a moment to capital S, capital D, sit down, you know. Um, mm. And through those, like, shining moments of music making in amongst just being sad in my house, um, it, it just totally renewed and regenerated my love for music and I think my purpose and drive towards doing things my own way and I mm. guess that kind of leads us up to here really so I, I actually have the pandemic to thank for a lot really yeah um, I mean it I'm a big I'm a very positive person by nature and a big sort of silver linings person as well and mm-hmm. I do often think about the the pluses that have come out of this weird time. Like for me as well, I thought last year uh, um, I I had been thinking, oh, maybe I should just give up percussion and just be an administrator. Like it's so hard to balance both and maybe it's my time. And then when we couldn't do concerts, Mm. I was like, my God, I miss this so much. And and then I realised that where my real sort of skill and mm. opportunity lies in is the way I can communicate what I want to do to change the world through my through music through playing and it was might have been similar for you yeah absolutely um it's it's just another medium to be able to share how you're thinking or feeling and can also just be used to reinforce so much you know um in putting together my Friedman project and just sort of thinking about where in the world we as artists sit, um, who is art for, why do we make it, why these people. I mean, I believe, and not, I believe that, you know, all art and music making is inherently political um, and that if, for some people I think, disagreeing to that point can somewhat maybe illustrate the fact that they haven't had to think about it you know <laughs> yeah um, exactly. and I, I just sometimes I feel I feel like I'm being maybe a little bit too <laughs> when I say that but I really do mean it um no yeah. I, I couldn't agree more mm-hmm. and you know I'm I feel like I'm constantly being the person saying um, but have you thought about your programming and your gender equity and is that mm. something that's ever occurred to you? And have you thought about, like, why you're only playing old music mm. and not even thinking about integrating living new music into your programming? Like, all those sorts of questions. I think a lot of classical music, musicians, it doesn't occur to them unless the question is asked of them mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah, and I think that that's a process that requires a level of self-reflection asking questions and probably just feeling really uncomfortable for a while, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, I think, the way that I think about it is when a lot of white people are confronted with the fact that they are also cogs in the machine of, you know, a larger thing called white supremacy and um, that that can make a lot of people feel very, very uncomfortable. And mm. um, But it's also a really important process to go through um, to realise that Actually, a lot of doors that have opened for my colleagues and for the people around me opened a lot faster for maybe other reasons besides skill on an instrument. Um, But 
And yeah, no, it's just, it's great to see that the conversation is finally sort of seeping into classical music. You know, we're a bit slow here. Maybe not as slow as mm. opera, but we are slow. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but we're getting there and um, I'll be really, really interested to see what shape our industry takes in the next decade or so. Yeah, um, me too. And, I mean, that's why I wanted to chat to you because mm. I feel like, I don't know, it's interesting to see how these things kind of happen in waves and mm-hmm. almost like trends. So the gender equity thing started about five years ago. Mm. Um to go to really take hold mm. and I feel like we've seen so much amazing change and development and kind of in people's both audiences perceptions but mm. also programming perceptions and also commissioning and a lot of great things happening in that area mm. and then so you kind of almost like okay that's almost done hopefully okay what's the next thing yeah so it's kind of like um okay it can't just be about women it's got to be about more than that like because it is more than that well I think it comes down to intersectionality it has to be intersectional Mm. you know I'm not just a woman I'm not just a person of color I'm not just queer I'm all of those things all the time and I can't shed any of those identities you know like when I come home um I live that experience every single day in the way, you know, how I'm perceived when I walk around in real life, in the pieces that I choose to play and having my image up on the internet, um, you, you just, you can't shed that. And um, it just, it strikes me when I think of myself as a kid, just, you know, happily rolling along playing Brahms and Mozart and Bach, like having no fucking idea what's going on. Yeah. And then you wake up one day and realise, oh, Oh, wait a second. Oh, okay. Interesting. (laughs) Why? Very interesting. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, totally. And we're we're just starting to see um, the beginnings of of change and in many ways I think um, it's interesting to watch how arts organisations and um, groups, not pointing the finger at anybody in particular, um, are very, very quick to tick, tick the box of we've done this, you know, we're good arts people, um, when really it's sh- the issues start are both at the top and the bottom, you know, mm. really. And then, need, um, I mean, for there to be true change, it needs to be systemic. You can't just invite guest artists of colour or... Um, commission yes. commission pieces from trans composers you know like it's yeah, yeah it's something yeah. um much much bigger than that and that sort of progress is slow going you know it does actually mm. take time um but for me to be able to um put on my freedman project as a woman of color being able to serve other people of color and do it together in our sort of, you know, sacred sharing storytelling space is just, it's amazing, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it is very timely. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the perfect time for it. And I loved uh, reading the quote that you said in a recent article, mm. you said, you can't be what you can't see. And I think you are going to be and are already a great role model for mm. that slogan because, um, cause you're right. Like, 
we've got to scream and shout about it and we've got to make it clear that that it's time for change and it's time for equal, like equality of all sorts. Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there are just um I always, I find myself coming back to think about um climate change and the way that we're trying to just like put these band-aids over wounds that are like overflowing at the moment and mm. the way that we as a society, I mean, have just like taken so much away from Indigenous and First Nations cultures who tended to that land in the first place in a way that wasn't going to end up being so fucked like it is now. Mm. Um, How do we turn back and give back? But really, ultimately, I mean, I don't know, like there's a larger point here that I can't quite articulate we live in a society, lots of things are wrong. Um, yes. <laughs> and so, so beyond what we're able to control or contribute to, but um, yeah. us, you know, you, me and other people in our industry have just been privileged enough to have this incredible gift and medium of music making, which I feel like by its simple virtue of bypassing the brain in a different way, we process yeah. music differently to how we process words and language points can be made you know um and any sort of way that we can connect to an audience and continue to like cultivate a sense of inclusiveness and at its core empathy empathy for other people empathy for their Mm. experiences for other people's experiences without necessarily um projecting your own one on there as well is um more more of those opportunities please you know mm. music is an incredible superpower um mm. and yeah that's the point <laughs> that's the sort yeah. of roundabout no, point I, that I want to make you know um I couldn't yeah, agree more yeah. I couldn't agree more and it's interesting that you say the thing about how in arts companies you know some are some are happy to tick boxes and stuff but it's interesting if you put the arts in the broader context of the development of our world mm-hmm. um that we are the leaders still really in in terms of like it's it's our industry mm-hmm. that's always I feel sometimes a bit burdened with feeling like we're the ones who care so politically or whatever mm-hmm. and so we're the ones who are sort of almost have that responsibility to well I feel a strong responsibility to like make the change do the things mm-hmm. that, make sure everyone's aware Mm-hmm. And sometimes I get a bit annoyed that why don't other industries take it as seriously as we do? I mean, obviously, you know, politi- our generally artists' political bent is a bit more left and a bit more open-minded and <laughs> a bit more... <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Why? So, um, I mean, of course, I think it's always been like that, but just sometimes I wish there's mm. just more you know all those companies who care so much about making money for example i mean i think that's probably one of the main differences that that might be the money problem is. <laughs> people not sure, really you know yeah. people sure do love their money and they sure do love yeah, hoarding do. money you know um they just love it <laughs> yeah and cool. that is the whole reason the environment's fucked yeah I mean, it's yeah, because yeah, we love money and we're just greedy and greedy little yeah. colonisers we are. Um, yeah. It's awful. It's awful. Um, hey, I just want to talk a little bit about 
terminology for so I noticed in some of your talking like articles and talking about this your project for mm-hmm. Friedman you refer to BIPOC as like a group mm-hmm. so and yeah I just wanted to because I feel like that's a term com- coming out of America at the moment would you say yeah in Australia and it's sort of a bit slow to be to be utilized here mm-hmm. but do you think that it's the best term because it's it it ca- captures everyone I, or and, and where the First Nations, obviously they sit within there as well. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Well, black, Indigenous and people of colour. I think um, yeah. it's very, 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 very important for black and Indigenous to have its own title as well, simply because mm, mm. Um, me as a biracial Japanese woman still have buckets more privilege than any of, you know, my black and Indigenous um, um, siblings in this world, like... Um, I think mm. that's really, really important and it's definitely important for me to just not take up space necessarily um, when there are other voices that that could be heard. And, no, I think BIPOC is a good, a good term. I mean, anybody out there who has suggestions for a modification, please, I'm more than open, open to hear about that. But, you know... Um, uh, respect for Indigenous folks and recognising the privilege um, that I have as an, a non-black person of colour is really important for mm. me to recognise. Terminology is always a tricky thing, though. Mm. Like, I remember five years ago when we were developing our First Nations program and there was a big discussion then about, uh, okay, first is it First Nations? Is it Indigenous? Is it Aboriginal? And Torres Strait Islander, what do we call it? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, I had a really interesting conversation actually on the weekend with um, Kim Walker who runs NASDA in mm. the Central Coast. And he was saying that they call all their programs, it's a, it's a dance uh, education institution, um, all their programs Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, blah, mm-hmm, blah, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone's saying right now, oh, yeah, maybe we'd, First Nations is not so relevant in Australia because it really came out of Canada and that's what they mm. talk about mm-hmm. their first people a lot as. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, Aboriginal, the word itself is refers to any Indigenous culture mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. that land. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it's so fraught. Mm-hmm. And so what I decided to do at a certain point with our organisation, was to just go for some sort of terminology that we felt comfortable with at the time and know that you're always better to try and go there and, and like, go into that world and try and interact with that world rather than going, um, I don't really know what to call it, so I just think that's a little bit too hard basket at the moment. Yeah, (laughs) well, you know. Why not just ask, Mob? Just ask. Like, that's all, we, you know, we ever get, had to the, do. The problem yeah. with that, which we did do, is that you get different answers from everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the, I think, the intrinsic one of the kind of challenges of, mm-hmm. of working with Aboriginal artists is that you, it's just so many different and cultures. It, yeah, exactly. So no one knows everything about every different culture mm-hmm. and what they would think mm-hmm. and there is no kind of agreed mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and so we're all just bumbling along trying to do our best. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of all we can really do, right, is try to do yeah. our best and be respectful um, and inquisitive and curious um, exactly. about those experiences and be prepared to, like... Um, 
just say, oh, nah, I fucked up or I was wrong or, yeah, actually I could do a little bit better. Then, yeah, being open to criticism I think is a really, really important thing to be able yeah, to do. Yeah, and that, as you say, it's, it's uncomfortable and it's hard and it's mm-hmm. awkward. Like I've had – I mean, we've been doing our First Nations program for five mm-hmm. years now too and – and I said in a concert we did recently, mm. the Opera House called Composing Songlines, mm. I actually said when I was introducing it, um, like the main lesson I think for us to take out of this and then for anyone who's in the audience who's interested in, in working more with mm. um, Aboriginal artists or culture is you have to just go for it and you have to admit when you've done something wrong and you have to say it's all a big learning process mm-hmm. and if I don't at least try then then nothing yeah. will ever happen. Yeah, and for goodness sake, don't centre your feelings when you're when you're accepting criticism, you know. Um, I think I noticed that a lot when in the past when I've given feedback or expressed to a colleague or a friend um, that something could have gone better in terms of, like, racism and uh, things like that. It's, it's incredible the amount of times that I've ended up having to comfort that person for having feelings about being <laughs> criticised, you know. Um, and I think that's something that white people as a, as a whole could maybe um, have, a look, have a look at. Um, just, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of that actually, it's interesting, um, in any sort of chamber music setting as well, you find that a lot too, hey. It's, it's real hard to see any longevity in chamber music groups if you can't put um, put certain things about, you know, the ego and la-la-la away and just be able to accept criticism. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. And it's so I hard totally because sometimes somebody will say something to you and you just be like, <laughs> no, I didn't think that. Oh, I hate you. But it's like, <laughs> you just have to, like, find a way to just, you know, tend to that little wounded child on the inside and just get the job done anyway, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course it's easy. You know, I'm whatever, 20 – how old are you now? 28. 28. So I'm 18 years older than you. Mm. And um, definitely – maturity and time helps you put your ego aside in a big way like Mm -hmm. you just go and as you get older as well you're like life's too short for an ego like and also you have this inner confidence that grows as you get older Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you would know as well Mm -hmm. where you're just like well I'm not going to take that personally because I I just have to man up and so I think for me also as an artistic director and someone who tends to lead rehearsals even just working on my skill of how I communicate what I want or what I think should change in the music in a way that is really economical but not offensive in its shortness and and quickness Um, Mm. that's been a learning curve as well for me oh I think it is for anybody who tries to lead an ensemble or you know um, it's one of the the hard the hardest things to and it, it just takes yeah for me it's definitely um, taking practice in being able to accept criticism and change things and also to give it in a way that serves the greater goal, which is what making great music, you know. Um, but that, I mean, that is, like you said, intrinsically tied with just, you know, the process of growing up and finding out more about yourself and where one mm. sort of, you know, sits in this life and what's important, la, la, la. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, hard. 
it's just hard sometimes. It is hard. Yeah. I just think life is hard. Yeah. <laughs> as well. Like as you get older, I was just talking to someone today, it's just like just dealing crap constantly. You, do, I, you don't really um, grow up thinking that that's going to be the case, I think. Yeah. Especially if you grow, grow up in a privileged situation. You don't at all. Your parents hide it all from you. <laughs> and then as you get older, you're like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this is really hard. <laughs> it's one thing after another. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for me, it's um, you can't turn your back on things. You have to, like, just do a little bit of everything every single day. Do you know that you have to wash the dishes every single day to have yep. dishes to use the next day? Like, it's just those, like, yep. simple, tiny little things that just have to keep rolling over. <laughs> I know, and it's so function. boring. Yeah. Do you know what my my um like? It's such it's so obvious, but my life motto, which I think I started being conscious of about mm. 10, 15 years mm. ago, is do it, then it's done. So I am very good at that, and because I realised, I think when I was a bit younger, that sitting on things just just made you anxious about when you were going to do it, and so I'm just very kind of proactive to just mm. keep on doing what needs to be done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not worth sitting on things <laughs> yeah absolutely I think for me it's like do five minutes full permission to quit if you hate it um, exactly yeah and that that mentality of that and also just even mm, oh, yeah yeah harder to do stuff in a global pandemic but do it then it's done is pretty good a hard lesson to learn though um but an, an, an important one an important one yeah it certainly does help especially when you've got a portfolio career and you're trying to sort of balance a whole heap of different tasks mm-hmm. um then yeah being organized and just getting on with it that's kind of a big thing I think yeah yeah and replying to emails at a timely fashion I think. Oh, my God. No one does that. No one does. I don't. What? It's like the world has just gone mad. Like there are way too many emails and everyone's just gone, not doing emails anymore. <laughs> cool. How are we no. supposed to talk to each other then? Carry a pigeon. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, very, it's a tricky time. It is. It really is. Hey, just before we wrap up, mm. I just wanted to ask a little bit more about your Friedman project. Mm-hmm. So what, what can we expect? What, well, what can we look forward to? Um, currently titled Three Conversations, but I think that's a bit naff, so I'll be thinking about that still. Um, so um, in this... It's not really naff, but I don't think it tells the story no, of probably what it is. No, no. Um, so that will continue to sort of be worked on. Um, so the project aims to tell stories, really, to tell stories of what it's like to grow up non-white in Australia. Um, I'm going to be commissioning three composers um, where we'll be collaborating together to sort of discuss source material um, and then write a piece that should go for about 10, 10 minutes for violin and optional electronics. That's going to be paired with videography from Tobias Willis at Cool Studios who's going to film a short sort of Proceeding portion of in conversation um, between composer and me, the artist, to be screened before the live performance. And I've managed to secure um, partnership with Play On, the amazing arts organisation that does incredible mm. things down here, 
in Victoria. So we'll be presenting that together. And yeah, I mean, just for the Freeman project and the use of the funds, there, it's going to be three composers and the concert, but the ball's rolling now. And I fully intend for this to be a long-term project. And yeah, one that sounds like it rolls rolls through, um, and something that hopefully I can work with for a big chunk of my career. Um, so, my first composer is um, Stephanie Cavagnana Cagnandeque, who is also a producer, um, not a producer, a presenter on ABC Classic FM. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll never forget that first Zoom chat that we'd had together. It was like two parrots just squawking each other that it hadn't seen each other for a very long time. I mean, we didn't, we weren't really acquainted prior to that, but um, there is so much source material to be used um, and stories that are individual, stories that we have in common. And, you know, it's this project isn't designed to mine people for their trauma. That's not what I'm interested in. Mm. It's about being able to tell stories, whether they be, you know, happy, sad, confronting haunting, frivolous, you know, whatever, whatever it is, um, whatever story it is that the composer wants to share. Um, And really, I guess, coming back to that idea of um, empathy in music and bypassing um, certain types of reasoning that we do in our incredibly complex minds um, and being able to use music as another way to... Um, continue to cultivate empathy in our society. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great, Kyla. I mm. can't. Can you invite me to the premiere? I can invite you. Sure. <laughs> yes. And do you know what? I still really want you to play the Lou Harrison violin and percussion. Yes. Yes, yes. That would be that so much like, fun. That is such a cool piece. So for the listeners, it's, uh, violin solo plus is it a percussion quartet yes it is yes oh. it's a quartet yeah and um we were hoping to program it this year but then we didn't get our rise funding mm. so that's a bit boring mm-hmm. but i it's still on the yeah in the planning because i just love that piece and i love i love how you play it and i love that you play it and hardly anyone else plays it yeah <laughs> well. it was a wonderful opportunity to be to be given to do that and to work with steve schick as well um, that was just wild, a really, really wild experience. And I really do hope that I get another opportunity to play it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Let's make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, so great chatting. And I'm just so happy that um, you are the Friedman winner. And mm-hmm. even though I was mentoring Will Hansen. <laughs> oh, but yeah, look, I, I just like, I mean, I'm sure the line's really long. Just can't bloody wait to work with Will. Um, yeah. What an incredible recital. Just enjoyed every second of it and um, enjoyed the sort of earnest approach that he had to doing his thing as well. He is very earnest. Mm. We, he, he's just wrapped up his kind of two years of being a Hatched Academy associate artist just the other day and, mm. and we were talking about how, how much he's developed in that time because he was quite young two years ago. Mm. Um, but also he, he retains the country boy earnest quality you know and I don't think he'll ever he'll ever kind of lose that Mm -hmm. anyway exciting times thanks so much hopefully we'll see each other in person really soon yes thank you for having me Claire
Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Offcast with Claire Edwards. For more information on the innovative people and musical projects discussed in this episode, take a look at the show notes below. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch by emailing admin at ensembleoffspring.com. And if you're interested in supporting the Offcast and the important creative work we do at Ensemble Offspring, you can donate via our website. Keep listening for more conversations with musical mavericks. <laughs>